Welcome to CMMS Radio, a podcast and general resource for all things CMMS, computerized maintenance management software, from selection to implementation to help you make better choices and have a successful CMMS journey. We'll bring in experts along the way to help us learn more about CMMS, facilities operations, and much more. If you need help with the CMMS project, send a message at cmmsradio.com using the What's On Your Mind link. Suggest a topic, share your CMMS story, or ask questions. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Today, we are joined by Corey Dickens. Corey Dickens, he is a salty sailor, seasoned wrench turner, and solutions consultant with a passion for industrial maintenance. Now, Corey and I have been talking several times over the last several months. He's got a lot of insights when it comes to maintenance, maintenance management, best practices when it comes to culture, changing culture. He's seen a lot of things. And I'm really going to start off with his military background. But first and foremost, Corey, I want to welcome you to CMMS Radio. Thanks, Grit. Thanks for having me. Um, longtime listener, first time caller. So appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's we've been trying to set this up for a while. And I recently came back from the Reliable Plant Conference out in Orlando, which was a really cool experience for me. I got to meet some of your teammates, but it was so busy. We couldn't find time to sit down. And they said, you know what, Greg? you and Corey been talking, why don't you guys do an episode? And I was like, awesome. So we got it set up as soon as we can. So I really appreciate you being here with me. Uh, I've been waiting to do this recording for quite a while. You and I've talked about that. What I wanted to get into, you know, for the listeners of CMMS radios, I wanted to get into a little bit of your background. You are in the military still to this day, and you, you learned a lot when you were in the Navy initially for those first four years, I've heard you reference it as, essentially like an accelerator when it comes to learning. So one of the first things I wanted to kind of touch on was that particular background when you went into the military, how that was an accelerator for you when it comes to learning, when it comes to maintenance management, best practices, and then how that catapulted you then into uh, industrial and the manufacturing realm. Yeah, it uh, it 100% was an accelerator platform. And many people often ask, right, when they know someone who is in the military, they're like, hey, do you recommend someone join up? For a very long time, I was very much so no, right? I, I took my experience, um, but it took a seasoned person telling me, it's like, hey, you have the chance to make the most of it, right? So it's what you make out of it. And that was a paradigm shift for me. And I think that's very relatable about anything we do in life. So for me, yeah, I, I joined up at first. I come from a blue, very blue go, blue collar background. I can't speak this. I need to keep drinking my monster. It's already <laughs> 6 p.m. Um, I come from a very blue collar background, right? Not a lot of money, but very rich in love and knowledge that's shared, right? You sit around and listen to your grandparents tell their stories. Um, my grandfather was a carpenter. My dad's been a UPS driver for 30 plus years, right? Just got a nice little pay raise. Uh, my mom was no college degree, but has now a senior HR manager in manufacturing. And my stepdad growing up was a very big influence in my life, was a mechanical engineer. so the only college educated person I know. And he worked in construction equipment. So he was a design engineer for the fir first skid steer that rolled off the assembly line for Caterpillar. Then he went to John Deere and now with Volvo construction equipment. So I've been around equipment for a long time. and I've been around manufacturing. I mean, everyone essentially has been, right? Everything we have is manufactured. But did make good grades. Um, I had the things I liked doing, and I had things I didn't like doing, and I'm very stubborn. So didn't make good grades. Decided to join the Navy. Uh, I was like, hey, if anything, I'll get after four years. It'll pay for college. I'll go to college, and I'll figure out what I want to do then, right? I was like, I'll have four years to figure it out. Worst words have never been spoken, right? The military was this is a giant daycare, right? It's an ultimate procrastinator. You come in and you're so hyper-focused on one job and doing a job well, you forget to focus on yourself and you forget to kind of find a passion and plan to exit, right? Unless you retire, you really don't have a lot of time to plan for a transition. Luckily, I went through that transition twice. First time coming off first four years of active duty, and then the second time was mobilizing with the reserves, which I've been in for about seven years. So I just, I'm coming up on 11 years total service, um, came off a of deployment and then had to make that transition again. 
came off that transition during COVID. So luckily for me, everyone was hiring, but at the same time, it was during a weird point in everyone's life. So military, I was a gunner's mate, which is a little different from Brian B who me and you have both kind of talked to on the side. Um, I was a gunner's mate on a small combatant shift, the destroyer. We're always see going, we're always doing stuff. And my job was not only everything that goes boom. So from rifles and pistols, I do inventory of our ammunition storage points. I also am in charge. I was a specialist of the largest weapon system on the boat. So that weapon system is essentially four stories tall. It has a operator station in the, the mount. I was the mount captain. So I'm overall in charge of the weapon system itself and troubleshooting. And then we have remote operators who actually push the button that fires it, right? That's modern day. But in that, there was a lot of maintenance. Um, in that, because I was supposed to have five people and it was really just me for most of my time there, I was the maintenance manager. I was the scheduler. I was the inventory clerk. And then I was also the one who put it all together and actually did the work. So I did a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, through that accelerator, it really started to change my perspective a few times, right? I think everyone goes to this evolution of coming in. Okay, I'm just going to bright-eyed and bushy-tail. I'm just going to learn as much as I can. Then you get to that comfortable spot a few months in, maybe a year in, where you think you know everything. And you start burning a lot of bridges. You start being very abrasive, right? Playing into negative culture. And then you hit that spot where you're like, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And then you just start embracing things and you start stepping back and seeing things from a different perspective. And I think one of the times that hit me the most was as I was doing all this, I was recognized as a subject matter expert as a 20 and 21 year old on a surface ship with, you know, 40 and 50 year olds who were overall in charge. Right. So I'm very young, very inexperienced, but here I think I know everything to do with everything. I walk into our combat affirmation center and my captain standing there who I had a very good relationship with. And he's looking to an inspector who is an O five, the same as him. He said, GM one, come over or GM two at the time, which is an E five. He said, GM two, come over here. I want to introduce you to someone. And he starts complimenting me to this gentleman who I have no idea who he is, but he's an officer. So I say, good morning, sir. And the officer rebuttals back about this glowing remark that my captain has for me. He looks at me and says, Oh, so he gets it. I, I took that very negatively at first. I was like, what do you mean I get it? Like, yeah, I get my job. I know how to do my job. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm good at it. What do you mean? Later on, again, that maturity stepped in. I was like, oh, I get it. I get all the surrounding factors, all the environmental stuff. I'm starting to put big picture together. So I don't know any other program or any other place in the world. You can come in in four years and know absolutely nothing, get taught a bunch, get squashed of what you think you know, and then built back up and then leave with this big picture. So that's what I took away. Um, I think some of that is nurture and some of it was nature. So again, mm -hmm. my upbreathing, my parents, I think it was just inherent in me, but that whole timeline was just an accelerator of sort and it got me to where I am today and I continue to learn. And that's something I'm very passionate about is stating obviously to all the listeners is I'm not an expert in any one thing. I'm kind of just above average in a lot of things together. Well, and I think it's fair to say that you stay curious, right? Inquisitive. You want to, I've, I've heard you reference this concept of why, 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 and really digging in and, what starts out when we're younger or we're early in a process and we're learning about something as a generalized why it starts to become the hope is that it starts to become more of a intelligent why where we're, we know what we're digging for because we've started to understand things. So getting that big picture in that short period of time through all that exposure, I'm sure you're around some of the right people, your family upbringing contributes to that. So now You've got this view where you can kind of move through the world in a different way. You don't have to be so abrasive. You have to be more about, okay, how does that really work? Because I don't know what I don't know. So let me go after that because that's only going to make me better and I can help more people, which is something that you like to do. You like to make sure things are running well. 
people are doing better, making progress. So you then went into the manufacturing space. And during that time frame, you actually learned a hell of a lot about taking not only what you had learned, but recognizing what you hadn't. And then that kind of startling realization that, whoa, the reality here when we get out into a plant environment is there's all kinds of things that are in constant conflict. So tell us a little bit about how getting into the manufacturing space and you really kind of going through this next level of, I'm going to call it maintenance maturity, if you will, right? What was that experience like? And maybe a little bit about what you saw and how that helped you grow to be a better leader and a better consultant when it comes to guiding people on this particular journey we're all so passionate about in maintenance. I think to back up just a little bit, there was the right person in my life when I was that very abrasive, know-it-all sailor, right? I was that junior sailor. And I remember one time asking the inquisitive why, but it wasn't a why with meaning. It wasn't tactfully placed. It wasn't positioned in conversation. It was me saying why. Right. And there's people, I don't know if it's still popular, but you, people used to call millennials Gen Y, right? Because you always ask why, 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 why? They're always asking questions, right? Yeah. There is such thing as Gen X, Gen Y, which are millennials, and then Gen Z. So it's, it's very fitting and I, it's funny. But yes, I asked why and I asked the wrong why. And it took a leader to step up and just say, hey, go do what I asked you to do. And if you still want to understand the reasoning when you come back, come talk to me and we'll sit down and we'll have a chat versus how many people out there say, why do you ask questions? Go do what I told you to do and just get it done. Right. They don't offer that consultative approach after the fact of because half the time I found that people assign tasks without understanding the purpose themselves. And that's when we're just going through the motions, doing status quo. Well, that's just the way we do things. No, no, no. Let's try to derive the purpose. And let's figure out if there's a better way to do it. I said it, and we were talking about this in different podcasts. Sailors are like electricity. They take the path of least resistance. So if you assign a sailor a simple task, they're going to find the most simple and efficient way to get it done. So again, tell me what the purpose is. Tell me what you need done. Let me figure out how to do it. But then getting into manufacturing, honestly, I would say during, I was... I've had a few manufacturing jobs, very quick stints here and there between deployments before and after span set was the one I've really claimed I stuck to. And I, I did learn a lot, but it was in hindsight in the six months I was there. I don't think I learned a lot. Again, I sat back, I fixed equipment. I was really good at it. I knew I was coming in. I now started to piece together entire maintenance management and what all the functions are together. I started to figure out what some of the metrics really meant. That's when I started to dig my teeth into it. That's when I evaluated a computerized maintenance management system to help me because it was only me doing maintenance. So I needed to become more efficient myself and organized. So I needed a co-pilot of sorts to help me do that. So I turned to a CMMS. Now, building the business case for that, getting a 40-year-old company with 40-year-old ways of doing things to come around to that idea, that was a challenge. But like many things, hindsight's twenty twenty. It wasn't until I decided, hey, I'm done with this. It's not a personal fit, a cultural fit. I have personal things going on. I'm commuting an hour each way. I decided to change a career. And luckily, I landed it brightly through my experience implementing their CMMS, which is very valuable. Great. George talked about this, right? Is CMMS vendors need people who have experience with it, have practical experience. So I'm sure that was a nice big uh, red flag for them or not red flag, a green flag in my application. Yeah. So I joined the team and it wasn't until then I really started to dive into the bigger picture and the bigger why. And then looking back, I was like, man, that's where I misstepped. That's where I messed up. It fits. So like even today when I go through SMRP documentation and best practices in my head, I'm thinking back to Spanset and what I should have done and how I should have done it differently. So I'm trying to apply it to real world scenarios that I did that I didn't do well. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm perfect and I have it all figured out. I've made my own mistakes. And that's honestly how I learned. I learned the hard way. I've done that many, many times in my life. I, I think that's extremely common for all of us. Anybody listening, I think we can we can make that generalized statement that 
it really does happen that way. We would like, and then we share information with other people to change that for others so that they don't have to stub as many toes, scrape as many knees, get in these you know heaters with people when there's nothing to see here. Let's just take a minute, take a step back. What are we really trying to do? And, and that's why, you know, we, we get wise a little bit later on when we figure out, oh, I had that opportunity to know it then, but I'm not going to belabor it. I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to recognize it now moving forward. So I can, in a sense, intervene or supplement that available knowledge to somebody when you're consulting a client uh, working with a colleague, maybe somebody new comes into the current organization you're at and you can give them insights, right? And yeah. and that's how that big picture actually starts to fill in. Even though you were having that big picture view in the early years when you were on the destroyer and you know starting to get it, somebody says, I get it. And at first you're like, what do you mean I get it? Of course I get it. And what they meant was, no, he sees it. He He actually sees where we're going with this. So it's not just kind of willy nilly. Now switching from that with, with your, with your experience in manufacturing, there's, there's a term I wanted to ask you about and I'm not going in any order. I know I have a little bit of a list here. I want to just pull a few things from it. Number one, I've always wanted to ask you in particular on the podcast, what is OEE and why does it matter? I, I could be a smart ass here and tell you the wrong acronym, right? Uh, most people do. Overall equipment effectiveness. Now there's two types of OEE, right? There's traditional OEE, which you have to input a schedule. Hey, what are our plan number of hours for a run, right? It's built for manufacturers that aren't 24-7. Someone's way smarter than I came up with TEEP, uh, Total Equipment Effectiveness Performance, TEEP is based on the predication of a 24-7 scheduled run of equipment and utilization of equipment, right? So it kind of takes one piece of the math out, which is great for people like me, who again, are I can do math. I do simple math. I, I don't do complex math. So the, the less input into the equation, the better for Corey. OEE, I think, is traditionally the gold standard because it allows people to see the efficiency at a particular equipment. So what's our availability score? What's our performance score and what's our quality and what's hurting us? Where people get it wrong is they focus too much on the output. Again, if you remember back from one of George Williams' stories from our AMA, he talked about the bagger or whatever, right? And they were focused on catching the bags at the end of the process. I was sitting there listening to him talk about that. I was like, why didn't they go to where this is actually happening, the input to the process and figure out how to optimize it? So the same thing here with OEE, where I think most manufacturers get it wrong, is they fixate on the final score. What is my actual OEE number? And what they'll do sometimes to incentivize that and hitting production metrics, they will incentivize with bonuses to production team or operators. So if operators are preached output, 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 what are they going to do? They're going to figure out how to tweak the input numbers to hit their number. So that's where we get wrong. And the, some of the input numbers are, again, that availability of the equipment. So what is planned downtime? What's unplanned downtime? Guess which number doesn't hurt operations? Planned, planned downtime. downtime. Yeah. Exactly. Because that's a maintenance thing. Oh, maintenance is doing too much work. Maintenance it's, is doing this. It's one of my favorite hacks when it comes to CMMS. And everybody's like, well, how do you even know this? And I say, well, in some ways I don't know. But I'll tell you this. If you focus on CMMS and you take away the C and the S and you look at maintenance management and then we look at the things, right, that we people are working on or relying on, right? So that covers everyone essentially, right? We're either working on it or we're relying on it to do something output, right? I love, absolutely love scheduled downtime because... It speaks to, for me, back when I was younger and I learned about like bottlenecks, which, uh, by the way, you're also talking about this thing with, with the OEE and the outputs. Uh, show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I behave. That's Eli Goldratt from a book called The Goal, which is quite timeless. And there's a resurgence right now in theory of constraints and all those types of things. So this all we could spin out like crazy here and be talking we for could. two hours. I, me and you usually do. 
Well, and, and because it's, we're, we're passionate about that stuff, but the thing I loved about you bringing up the planned downtime, the scheduled downtime, as I always referred to it as, is we target the downtime based on what we've learned from a machine on its mean time between failures. And we pick an intervention strategy that actually pulls everything down. We have that disruption planned out. And as a result, we're going to tend to now really impact the output where we can start to see measurable gains that are that are in percentages, not not a percentage of a percentage, but two, four, six, eight percent increases, all because a plant is doing one thing and one thing only. They're in a smart way applying planned downtime to do scheduled maintenance. And it might be for two hours and it's actually preventing multiple eight and 12 hour downtime failure events. And that is money in the bank and it's less stress for the people working on stuff and you can get out of work on time. And I, I just, that one little thing, I just, I get excited about it. So I'm glad you brought it up just because I was asking about OEE. So anyway, yeah. I interrupt. But, that, but you. that makes too much sense. That makes too much sense to actually put the puzzle pieces together. Instead, let's just tweak what we can to make us look good and pawn it off on someone else. And I don't think anyone does this maliciously. They just understand how to tweak the inputs to achieve the desired output. I wonder. Again, we, have to, we have to change the mindset and the culture that, hey, putting in eight hours a day, whether you do a lot or a little, is what we care about more than if you do two to four hours of really good work and then take the rest of the day off. Oh Again. yeah. Now you're talking my language, man. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> hey, four day work weeks are coming. Apparently I, I used to, I used to, uh, talk to people I worked with partners, bosses, whatever it might be about these concepts of, you know, achieving metrics as well as actual goals. Maybe it's revenue numbers or something like that. And one or two of them would say, Greg, uh, I don't care if you work three hours a day, if you're crushing it, and that's the way it's going to roll out. I'm good with it. Now, you start doing that. That's not actually how it works out, right? Exactly. Like, Where do you think you're going? I'm like, dude, it's all done and go check it out. You won't find a problem with it. It doesn't really work that way. But, the but look idea how much is, more you could be doing if you actually sat here for eight hours a day, every day, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. well, and if we're talking about maintenance, maintenance is about moving, it's not about sitting, it's not about going and finding, it's about you know, doing things, turning wrenches, getting things running. And then what downtime you do have can actually be more productive. I'm talking about for the individual, but I want to, yeah. I want to switch away from OEE. And I want to ask you about another uh, acronym and that's yeah. UDA. I want, I want to have mm -hmm. you describe for everyone the UDA loop, because I, I thought that was just fascinating when you, when you brought it up. And I just want to have you talk about that a little bit. It's something I've been harping on. Um, for a few months now. And it was because I, I got a chance to start speaking at some conferences, right? So I spoke at our Illumination conference, um, which is our Brightly end users formerly do solutions by way. I know me and you have talked in depth and nauseam about that, yeah. but also at the Craft Brewers conference in May in Nashville was a great time. I had that presentation and I'm going to use a very similar but tweaked presentation at Fabtech next month. And it's the OODA loop. So again, if this episode comes out beforehand, sorry, I just spoiled my whole presentation. The OODA loop is a time-critical decision-making framework developed for the military. It was specifically developed by an Air Force fighter pilot named John Boyd. I always love to give this analogy. Think of your favorite aviator in the history of movies, probably Maverick, right? And let's say he's flying his aircraft at Mach Jesus, 30,000, 40,000 feet in the air, and all of a sudden, a Russian MiG gets behind him. The first thing he has to do is, and they're already trained this, you need to be aware of everything going on with your aircraft. What's your fuel rate? Um, what's your altitude? Who do you have with you? What's the capabilities of your aircraft? That's why pilot school is so rigorous. They have to know that aircraft, and it has to be an extension of themselves. Then they also are trained on enemy combatant aircraft. What are the capabilities? What is the range? What weapon systems does it have? So first is observation. I need to understand what I can control. I need to orient myself to what's chasing me. 
I need to decide a best course of action and then I need to act and I need to act now. That's the OODA loop. I think it has great parity with what we're trying to do where we're trying to build business cases and it makes it very actionable. Just again, think of the same thing. I need to understand my business. What are we trying to achieve? What's going wrong in our process? What are our bottlenecks? I also need to understand the kind of personas that I have to target. And then I'm going to orient myself to a solution. So first, I need to worry about me. Second, I need to start looking for the help. I need to orient myself to a solution. I need to find my vendor based on my criteria. Throughout this whole process, we're asking obvious questions. Stupid, obvious, why? Why do we do this? Why do we do it that way? Uh, Why don't we do this? Right? Again, get to the core, the five why. Get to the root cause of the problem so you can better understand how to strategically go after that. Then you decide. And in my decision framework, it's how to build a business case. Starting with that observation, which is your current state. Orientation, which is where you want to be. And you need to define who do I need to educate? What is our implementation plan? You got to give yourself wiggle room to improvise and adapt because we all know most implementations don't go off without a hitch every time. So Mm -hmm. the best plan is the simplest plan. Build in flexibility for yourself. Don't be overly detailed. And then act. And I, I have a few tips on things I didn't do in my five or six rounds of internal meetings that we had about trying to get this solution, trying to take the next steps. There was five or six that they just kept dragging on and we never left with next steps. So there are a lot of lessons learned from there that I recommend in my act stage and we put it all together. So that's our OODA loop. That's where it originated from the military and that's how I use it for business cases. Now, the the comprehensive presentation on that so people can really learn about it, that's going to take place, I think you said it's at FabTech, which is in, is that in late September? Chicago. It's uh, September 11th through the 14th in Chicago. All right. Chicago, we'll get some deep dish pizza. (laughs) I so. I, I would encourage anybody to go and check it out. And, you know, we, we can't showcase all of this right here, right now on this episode. But I will tell you that when I've spoken to Corey over these last several months, he does he does actually get it. And what I try to do when I'm bringing guests on and, and, and look, it's not meant to be flattery. What people what people need when they're looking at maintenance, maintenance management, whether you have a, a computerized maintenance management software or solution or not you need a process. It's really about process. And part of process not is not just about step one through five or one through 12. It's about the culture. It's about the mindset. It's about kind of connect, not just connecting the dots, but what's on the other side of those dots. You have to have some vision for that, but it's always, always, always going to go back to why. I make this joke all the time. I say, you know what's interesting about every single day of the week? What they all have in common, Corey, they end with a question. And that question is why you get it because the letter Y and all this, yep. and I think it's clever like and funny one. and it's actually true. And I, I, I love stuff like that because if you, if you simplify things and you start to understand, all right, we don't have that many moving parts. We've got two, three. Now we can focus in and get something done. But this is where I was going next in our conversation where you're talking about this idea of understanding kind of where you're at, what you're trying to do. And I think culture plays a really big role in that. And you've seen a lot of different culture in your time in the industry, as well as when you were in the military. And one thing that seems to be common when I'm having guests on that understand these things about maintenance, maintenance processes and how to really get things done and get people moving 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, you, you have to focus in on that culture and you have to include your frontline workforce in the process very, very early, if not the first series of stakeholders that have to, some, somebody in the C-suite, hey, we got a problem here, here, and here. Okay, fine. What does that mean for everyone? Let's go talk to everyone that deals with it first, not how it hits our balance sheet. Let's go find the people that do the work. Would you say that's where culture change or culture exists at first when it comes to maintenance? It needs to. 
Okay. Again, that's a lesson learned from Spanset. I didn't know anything about culture change, people management, the, the amount of influence culture has on technology adoption. I had no idea. So again, I played all the wrong cards, did all the wrong moves and have now learned and I'm a little bit wiser, but also there are a lot of books out there, right? There's a lot of uh, literature in the maintenance and reliability space. And one I know you wanted to talk about was maintenance, reliability, best practices, third edition, Ramesh Gulati. And the second chapter in there after introduction is culture and leadership. So if anything, Ramesh's book should be the one to tell you your culture and your leadership come first. And there's an interesting LinkedIn post. Um, I was a little lazy when I was looking at it yesterday on LinkedIn because I'm still on dad leave. But from a gentleman, Simon, I think Murray is his last name. He has this matrix and this graph. And on your x-axis going up is business outcomes. So like you talked about OEE. Um, the value that the business receives from this type of maintenance strategy on the Y axis on the bottom is leadership and culture and a few other things, right? The intangibles, the things you need to get right. And as you move up both your X and Y axis more and more, you go from a maintenance to reliability to asset management. And I thought it was so well put. It, it acts as a precursor. If you want to move from a, a maintenance culture to a reliability culture, these are the intangibles you have to do. Here's the business objectives you will receive, but here's the input that you have to put in. Here's the baseline you have to start with is leadership and culture. It's really, it's excellent insight because we're going to see this with subsequent guests. We've seen it with past guests. Uh, I've had George Williams on. We've talked about it. Brian Bieski, we've talked about it. Dr. John Ross, we've talked about it. I just did a, a, a one with Sean Eisenhower at Iriducio, yep. and we touched on it there. Um, it just it, it's so consistent across the, tr the the maintenance professionals that are out here trying to kind of move that process in the right way, and that's going to lead me to my next question that I wanted to make sure we talk about before we wrap this episode, and I wanted to talk about tribology and why tribal knowledge is at risk. And I, I know you understand this with the generational shifts and changes in the workplace where we arguably have about four generations in the workforce now, and there's going to be this transition. And we talk about the paradigm shift and digitization, but there's great risk of this tribal knowledge. Would you agree going away? We're already seeing it. It's the pain is already being felt in your local small and medium sized manufacturing facilities. Like hands down, I, I get the opportunity in my role to talk to literally hundreds, right? I think I counted last year between four and 500 different organizations I talked to. And of that, I can tell you not a small percentage. The question was posed and I would pose this in the question, starting to film out, understand where the pains are coming from. Cause that's my job, right? I'm not just going to show you and feature pitch you on a software, right? My job is to act as your trusted advisor. So to only to do that, I need to understand, orient myself to where you are, right? I can't, I can't observe anything. You need to observe. I need to orient myself to you and your culture. But I asked a question one time specifically, and I said, Hey, what's, what's it look like? Do you have any senior techs that are going to be leaving pretty soon that you want this implemented so you can get ahead of? He's like, Oh, they left six months ago. I was, I just let it pause, let it simmer. And I was like, what's that impact been like? He's like, man, we don't know what we're doing. Nobody around here knows our preventive maintenance schedules. They don't know the best practices of how our equipment likes to be run, right? Which one needs to be kicked? Which one needs to be coddled? Which one needs to be jump started, right? They have no idea. They're flying blind. Because when you lose that tribal knowledge, you're flying, you have to start over from scratch. And I did that. When I walked into Spanset, there was no turnover with who did maintenance before me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I walked in and there's literally I, there are 10 filing cabinets that were in my office that were slam packed with paper records from the past 34, 35 years. I couldn't read anything. I had no idea of the organization. There's no tab saying what's here and what's here. I looked at John Garrison, my manufacturing engineer, who was my best friend that entire time there. And he is a 
old he's a he's a good old dude and i was like john i don't care tell me what you know and we're gonna figure this out and we're gonna create a new plan because this isn't worth it so i started from scratch my inventory no preventive maintenance was done right and to give you an idea of the organization i walked into and to no fault of them but the previous team before me we had 21 critical assets right we're a textile company we ran uh narrow fabric weaving looms. So old looms. Those looms take in raw yarn and make a fixed product. Think of a ratchet strap that is woven by these narrow fabric looms. So that's what I'm running. That's what I have to keep up. And these have a lot of moving all mechanical components, right? I think I had two or three that had electrical controls on them, but we had 21 of those bolted to the floor with creels running off the back. One of them was a cannibalized asset. That thing is sitting there like bare bones. Like they had gotten to a point where supply chain or part was so bad. The business made a decision to just start stripping parts from one of those pieces of equipment. So it just sat there. I walked in and they're like, hey, your job is to get these back up and running. I said, what about that one? They said, yeah, we kind of already bit the bullet on that. Like, again, that's talks about the run to failure culture that some of these places have or again hey what needs to be fixed on it i don't know because i have all tribal knowledge left with whoever came before me and 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 we we've seen it we've seen it for long long periods of time and people who were here before us as far as being in industry they saw it and it's going to continue unfortunately but if there's some progress and so for me when I think about people getting a CMMS platform, or, or even if you're not going to get a CMMS platform, one of the things that's important to do is document what you do in your day-to-day job, but people yeah. need to know why you're doing this. Don't make them feel like, I just want to know what you do. Because yeah. some bosses out there are micromanagers, and they want to know that you're actually working when they're not looking. And it's like, okay, forget about that. You can tell if they're working, if the stuff's getting done. That that's re- yeah. It's that simple. It really is that simple. But if people document what they do and let's say, for example, they retired or, or, you know, some unfortunate thing happened. We don't want that. But I, that I by the way, always say they went fishing full time. Their process is for us. And, and so in that, I, I, I always encourage people, you know, do it any way that you can have somebody that if they like to make videos and they just want to kind of spitball and make videos, don't worry if it's perfect. Just tell me what you do. Tell me it's, what you do and how you do it. I had a buddy, and this is a long, long, long time friend and a business partner, right? So we grew up together. We had some businesses together. And one of those was a CMMS that we built and he built and all this kind of stuff. And we would talk about these different things and we'd have some of those what if conversations. And he's like, all right, well, if this, I've got this, 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 and it's in this area. And it's all spelled out for you. Now, will you figure it out? Yeah, you'll figure it out. Will it be hard? Sure, it will. But it's there. And the reason we liked that approach with each person's job, regardless of whether they were an owner of the company or not, we want that capability to gap fill when knowledge goes away. We want the knowledge to be static so we can hand it off to one another, work with it. I've always thought that in this is actually for CMMS as well. I think people that are in a CMMS organization should at least a little bit understand what it's like to walk through a facility, look around at a few things and have someone like yourself or someone else say, well, you see that and you see that. Have you ever seen this happen or that happen? Well, they use the CMMS for this, 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 and this. And then I like when people that are in customer success have a little bit of cross training over to maybe account management. And then a little bit of a touch in the account executive role, just to get a little bit of understanding of what happens from start to finish when a client is looking for something, how do they find it? How do they match up their process? All this kind of stuff and all that cross-functional knowledge, if it's stored, recorded in some fashion, hopefully organized and searchable, we now have a way forward because in everything we do, manufacturing or otherwise, facilities management, janitorial, there's some kind of a process. And if somebody doesn't know those three things and they only know four out of the eight or whatever it might be, 
that gap is going to cause a problem. We can fix that today. You can start documenting things today. And everybody's like, oh man, I got to do all this work. And it's like, yeah, but when you're at a company, you actually should be working there with the intention to always leave it better. Yeah. No matter how you leave, right? It's- there should be, if you're a subject matter expert, leave that subject matter expertise behind. I know everybody's like, no, they shouldn't get that benefit. And it's like, why shouldn't they? They gave you a job, yeah. you know, participate I, a little bit. I think that tribal knowledge capture, where you talked about the cross-functional training, I think it happens in, I think it's two prongs, two things I want to mention about that. One is what the Navy does well. So the Navy in each community, that community officer and enlisted have warfare pins that they can train up or prerequisite amount of knowledge. Those are all, I am both a surface warfare or enlisted surface warfare specialist, which means I understand surface warfare operations, mm-hmm. destroyer. And I also know expeditionary warfare from my reserve unit as a Mesron, which is Maritime Expeditionary Security Squadron. So we do like harbor security, port defense type stuff. Mm-hmm. But in both those communities, I had to go through and cross train on every function of that community, like on a ship. I need to know power generation, right? Brian, where he comes from, he was an engineer. He was a snipe. I don't remember what platform he was in, but our snipes, there's our gas turbine modules, our gas turbine uh, generators. They also generate my high pressure and low pressure air systems, which I need, right? And all of that drives my system. I need to know primary, secondary, and tertiary power supply for my system so Mm -hmm. I can communicate with them what needs to happen. I need to understand backups for air supply. Again, I had to understand total operations. And that's what helped pull me out of that rut of I know everything and my slice of the world is so important to the operation. I got to understand the totality and the the bigger picture. And then in manufacturing, that's where most of us want to be with maintenance management culture. And the book's right behind you in asset operations. Ryan kind of takes a different approach to it as well. And I haven't read the book, by the way, so don't quote me on anything in there. I, I still appreciate what he's doing. I appreciate the book. But the uh, total productive maintenance, operator-driven reliability, co-ownership of equipment. Again, take this total team approach to managing your assets. If it's operators run it, and when it breaks, we call maintenance, and maintenance is responsible for fixing it, there's always naturally going to be friction and tension and a division there. So we have to craft it from day one is we're all on the same team, rowing the same boat in the same direction. If not, we're working against each other and there's going to be friction and there's going to be competition for budget, right? Again, I talk about it in my presentation for how to get these across the line. What I didn't do is go to IT, go to operations, go to supply, start building champions when you start discovering why you need this and involve them. Again, IT, I can tell you nine out of 10 people I talk to, they go to IT right before they go into their presentation to get approval for a purchase order. And mm-hmm. they say, hey, I just need this signed off. What is IT's job? Just like maintenance, we have a function in the business. They are also under-resourced. They also have too much work going on to accomplish everything. And they're so niche in their job, just like maintenance, that they're the only ones who know like how to do things. So they're going to sit there and be like, what do you know about my job? Right? It's like IT coming and telling maintenance how to do maintenance. If you go to IT and say, hey, I already did everything, a cloud-based solution, good to go. Initially, their posture is going to be defensive. They have to be, just like finance. We can't throw money at everything. They're going to be defensive first. But if you build an ally out of them and you work with them when you're building the business case, now you go into a presentation having IT as approval, operations is going in on this because they might be able to utilize some of the benefits as well. Again, operators have tablets next to them in a smarter factory. They can send that request to the CMMS. Now this data logging is happening automatically and intuitively, right? Mm-hmm. Plus now we can also track what the OEE downtime is and what mm-hmm. the CMMS downtime is. Now we can see where the bottleneck is. That's but again, right. creating that total team environment and it's so much easier said than done. I understand it. But this, that has to be what we're chasing. And every time anyone talks about a reliability culture or an asset management culture, operator-driven reliability, TPM, that's a part of it. They're finding where the waste are. They, they're finding where teams are clashing and they bring down that barrier. 
and they do it through culture and culture evolution, culture change. They do it through involving and working with those groups, not pitting the blame on other groups. Yeah. And this, this, I mean, again, a recurring thematic subject that is a reflection of current times, but it's not really going to go away. And we'd like to get better at recognizing it and handling it better. I think every CMMS provider out there, and I'm not saying who's better or who's worse. I think every single one of them should have people on staff, staff somewhere that is some form of a subject matter expert, not only in what they provide, but who they provide it for and why they provide it. What is the real problem or what is the real set of problems that you solve so that when there's a consultative engagement, which is what it should be with your clients, your job is to help your customers. I think they should have maintenance professionals and uh, CMRPs and people with backgrounds that have kind of been there and done that. And that doesn't mean that people that don't have that background can't learn it, understand it. I do actually believe, and some people would argue with me, that you can take this information in over a relatively short period of time if it's from the right people, someone like yourself, a Brian Bieski, a George Williams, and on and on and on like this, and start to really kind of match those things up. And when you really do understand, you then are in a really good position to consult people. And I think everybody in the organization at the CMMS should be looking at it that way. And I think everybody on the other side, if we're going to call it that, you're on a plant, you're a facilities manager, you run a school, a campus, a hospital system, land subdivisions, it's oil rigs, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's uh, you're building ships, whatever it might be. What you have to do is look at what you need and then figure out who else can get on board with that, not just to get on board with it, but make it meaningful because then you're going to get the support you need. So if you're meeting with a CFO, you got to understand why is this relevant to him? If you're meeting with somebody in IT, you know, don't bring it to them at the end and go, hey, we're getting this great CMMS. Everybody's approved it and this and that. Well, the IT person, whoever, at whatever level, they're going to say, well, I need to understand, does it have uh, uh, SOC 2 certification? Does it have this or that? Because I have to worry about data integrity. And then somebody over here is going, well, it's work orders, man. What's somebody going to do if they snipe our work order data? They're going to go figure something out. And the IT guy says, that doesn't matter. It's not, oh, that's not meaningful data. So we got to kind of line that up. This is why projects should take a little bit longer than shorter so that people can really get aligned well. And the I think, see, this, this is where I'm wrapping up is because I think the vendors, all of the vendors are trying to do great work. I think all the clients need help with this, that, and the other, and they need to kind of come together and help solve those problems first. They should already have their money worked out. I don't think it should be about discounts or anything like that. I think it should be, what's your problem? What's causing the problem? Do we all agree on that? Who, who are the stakeholders? And let's all get that moving in the right direction. So unfortunately, guys and gals out there, you might have to rework how you're going to hit quota. Yeah, yeah. But you're still going to hit it. You just you just have to pipe up differently. But now and- it's quality over quantity. Exactly. Now we're, now we're fixing the statistic where 70% of maintenance initiatives fail during implementation because a myriad of issues... One of which, probably the number one, is a culture or misunderstanding or misalignment of the true values that we're trying to accomplish here. But again, as you mentioned, talking to IT allows you to go in and derive minimum technical requirements before you go to vendors. That's why an RFP, RFQ process exists. And more mature, bigger clients typically utilize that funnel because they solicit out to 20, 25 people and say, here are my requirements. Answer yes, no with descriptions what you do. Don't and I, I love this when I see RFPs come through where they say, please don't just answer yes. Please elaborate. And I love that because again, as more someone who used to turn a wrench, who is now learning about the back end of CMMSs because I understand the value of it. I understand how to implement and its use cases. Now I get to understand the more technical stuff and I get to learn that. And that's really fun. Again, being an inquisitive person. Now I get to answer those questions and now I get to elaborate. And if I don't know something, I have people I can ping and they help answer it. And it's cross-functional, right? I VP'd the last time I did this, I had to ping the VP of cloud ops for a question that was very technical related in there. And I screenshot it and kept it on my, on my system. I was like, I'm going to reference back to this next time. And again, that's the same thing we're trying to do with the CMMS. If something breaks, 
I need to document it. So the next time it comes up the same equipment, I'm like, Hey, I think I had that problem a month ago. Oh, in my work order history, I filtered by problem cause code. There it is. Let me see what I did in the Navy. I have Bibles. I have publications at nauseum. Very smart engineers draw these out. Right. And I used, I used to be bad. I don't like reading like typical literature and books. Mm -hmm. I will read front to back a technical publication. Like it's nothing. And I used to do that. And that's how I, I think I got so good at my gun was again. I saw the Ram acronym in there. Mm -hmm. I, I learned anything and everything I could. I was just absorbing knowledge like a sponge. But you ever, you ever, you ever looked at, uh, well, you were on a destroyer, but being in the Navy, you know, you're, you're the taxi service for yep. a lot of the military. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, like I, I had a family member that was on, on a, a, a really famous ship that has like seven stories of storage. Right. And they got Humvees on there, high mobility, yep. multi-wheel vehicles that are yep, used so to troop transport and all that. Yeah. The user manual on that thing is like this. Oh, there's, there's multiple. So like in Brian's job, yeah, I think he said he was a GSM. So most engineers, what they're every year, anyone who's up for advancement, your rate puts out, it's called bibs, bibli bibliography, all the requisite knowledge you need, to say you're smart enough to, you know, your job well enough, you can advance to the next pay grade. Engineers, most of their bibliographies are nothing but naval ships, technical manuals. And there are lots of NSTMs. Like I had to reference them a lot when I'm trying to do a lockout tag out for my equipment. Cause again, mm -hmm. I have to understand what else relies off that power source. If I'm doing like water main tag out, I need to double valve. Okay. What other systems are impacted? I can't tag out our sonar skid and their chill water pump by trying to tag out for my uh, sprinkler system. I can't do it. So I have to get into those publications. And again, I have to understand bigger picture what this impacts. But yeah, it's those those manuals are quite large. I had 21 pubs. Some of them were long line schematics. Some of them were general characteristics and information, right? Like anything you've seen of a system that's broken out. Mm -hmm. I even had the troubleshooting. The little like uh, almost like a like a notepad. Uh, we called them uh, your wheel book. It's like a little notepad. And you just flip it over the top, and it had all my fault codes. And I would read in a very brief, as brief like four to five words that made no sense unless you knew the jargon what mm -hmm. the fault was. And it would usually identify most of my faults were proximity switches. Again, everything was ones or it was a very analog system. It was ones or zeros. But, so if it's if a component's supposed to go from here to here and it stops midway, this reads zero, that reads zero, that's a fault. It trips, it tells me, and now I know a general area to go diagnose a problem. But what's important about that to me, what I, I'm, I'm just calling this out, is that this, this system, systemizing something and creating a process that has standardization, baseline standardization, allows you to... to to make those rapid decisions based on something that nobody else would understand. And then when we bring it all the way back to the tribal knowledge and you're using a CMMS or some other way to document what somebody's doing, yeah. that is just going to carry that forward. So then we get yeah. into, you know, digitization and this yeah. new renewed movement to digitize everything. Yeah. Well, of course. So Cause that's the way it. people work now. Oh, for Again, sure. For sure. The workforce thing, baby boomers are leaving. Now you have Gen Z who's fully embedded into our workforce. Mm -hmm. And now we have to worry about whatever comes next. Uh, Gen AA, I don't even know what they're going to call it. I haven't looked it up. But the next generation coming in. Gen Z and the next generation, all they've ever known is phones and tablets and Google. They mm -hmm. can Google all of human information. They can solve their own problems without asking a question. They can and ask they like, Alexa. And they like to. They like to. They're they inquisitive. Want. And they get to ask stupid questions like my daughter. She asks not stupid questions. She asks good questions. My daughter's two years old and she's already talking. She'll ask the most random questions. And I'm like, I don't know, but you know what? Alexa knows. Let me ask Alexa or where we bring in chat GPT mm -hmm. generative AI, right? It's only as good as the information it's, it's Being been, fed. been fed, but yeah. again, it kind of breaks it down. You can ask it open questions. What is this? What is that? I asked it. When I was putting my presentation together for the OODA loop, right? I asked ChatGPT, what steps should I include when building a business case for technology for manufacturing? It listed like seven steps and they were pretty good. But I was like, I already used all seven of those steps in my four-step OODA loop process. Yeah. So who's smarter here? 
not Corey, but let's just leave it at that. But again, it was yeah. cool to see that. And it was good to be, it was cool to be fed the same information that I was aware of. And I, I got, I did the little thumbs up to validate that was a good response. I know there are a lot out there that are still being thumbs down, but that's, that's helping feed the model. It's going to get smarter over time. Well, but and that's, that's, if that's, you want to talk about AI, talk to Ryan Chan, do not talk about me. So <laughs> Corey's good at turning a wrench, not so much about AI. That's, and, and, and that's okay. We're all here to learn. So we'll, we'll put some of this stuff in for another episode and yeah. I want to wind it down. I want to get you, you know, back on track with what you're doing and we're Sounds definitely going to be doing more episodes. I'm glad we finally got to do this, Corey. I want to ask you a couple of real quick kind of fun questions and then we're okay. going to wind it down. So, uh, first question, favorite music. Like genre or band? Both. Oh, Either way, either um, way, you answer any way that just pops into your head. What's your favorite kind of music? Emo music, unfortunately. Right. You, so like early 2000s emo. Got it. Got it. Or punk so rock, whatever they called it. I, I love the albums. The pop goes punk. I love okay. when punk bands take a popular song, a pop song specifically, and then they turn it, right? All right. All right. And then next question, favorite sport or hobby? The one I grew up absolutely loving was football. I right. am not a great, again, I'm a pretty decent athlete at a lot of sports. I played a lot of sports growing up. Football was the one I really wanted to go to college for. I wanted to be a six, four quarterback in the NFL. I'm five foot 10, like a buck 65, a buck 70, right? I'm not making it anywhere near a football field, but football was my hobby. I still, to this day, have certain statistics memorized from certain players growing up, right? I follow players, not teams. I unfortunately grew up a, uh, a Dallas Cowboys fan. But again, that was in the mid 90s. That was everything on TV, right? The Chicago Bulls, the New York Yankees and the Dallas Cowboys. If you wanted to watch sports, that was on. So that's naturally who I started pulling for. But as an NC State fan, I did not attend. I would love to. Want, they have a maintenance reliability management program. I've been looking at that, trying to think about taking that one. So hopefully that's I can go to that. It's gaining popularity at a lot of it universities. I, and I see seeing... the value. And they also yeah. do... CMMS utilization, CMMS administration. So again, if you're getting started in this, I think it's right under $2,000. It can be remote or it can be uh, in person for one week. Yeah. Send some people. George has one coming up. It's a different from, I think it's in the MRM track, but it's not necessarily in like the three module that gets you a certificate. But George is, is doing the CMMS utilization. It is CMMS specific. And, and uh, that's something I noticed this week. And uh, we're going to be doing more to talk about that later. So... We've got your favorite music. We've got yeah. your favorite sport. And we found out the heartbreaker favorite football team because yeah. I have that same football team since I knew what a football was. Yep. And it is what it is. Love me or hate me, whatever. Uh, final question. What is one piece of parting advice you would give someone to maintain the crazy one? Work-life balance. Oof. No, you're not perfect. All right. No, like you it. are not perfect. You, I was someone who used to never set goals. Um, I still struggle with them to this day, especially personal goals, but I find them more valuable. I find they help keep me on track. But often I, I try to be a perfectionist. I think a lot of us do. And I'm also a very bad procrastinator. So those kind of conflict a lot. But just know you're not perfect. You're not going to swing the perfect balance. Again, I have two young daughters. I want to be a dad, but I also love going to these conferences and I hate leaving my family, but I like traveling at times too. So I have to strike this balance and I have three balls to juggle. I have my family. I have what I do with Brightly in the CMMS world. And then I have the Navy Reserve still going on. And all three of those are always vying for my number one priority and attention. And I can't feel like I'm being the best dad without making the most money and providing for my family but also the benefits I get from the Navy help long-term support my family. So I'm always in this weird confliction between the three, but I'm, I, I think I'm striking a decent balance. So just know you're not perfect. Do the best you can, but if anything, be there for your family, like choose them over anything else. And I hope bosses take that on more than employees. And I hope they embrace that for their people. It's, it's good. It's a good message. I like that. So, um, one, I want to thank you for your service in the military. Two, I want to thank you for the many conversations you and I have had, including this one, because I think there's going to be a lot of, a 
lot of stuff in here that's going to help people. And I want to do that again uh, in the future. We'll get that scheduled. I know you got to continue to prepare for the upcoming uh, presentation that you're going to be doing in September. And I'll put some information in the episode about that so that people have an awareness. And I want to let people know how to get in touch with you. So uh, for me, I always encourage people uh, to connect on LinkedIn. It's a great place to network with people. Corey Dickens is on LinkedIn. Last name is spelled D-I-C-K-E-N-S. Like Charles. Yeah, there you go. Like Charles Dickens. And then he is a solution consultant at Brightly, but he's not just a solution consultant. He's the kind of individual that sees both sides of it and is really trying to do good work when it comes to helping people solve problems. So if you just have a general maintenance question or something like that, I, I think it's fair to say you're game to answer it if somebody wants to send it your way. I'm game to try and answer it. If not, I am the type of person that will say, I don't know, but I'll find someone who does. That is the best answer if you don't have the answer and then you just exactly. go and get it. So, And I am 100% okay saying I don't know of everything. Again, I am here to learn. I will tag along like a remora on who actually gives you the answer. And then again, I'll take that in and I'll learn it myself going forward. Excellent. Corey, thank you so much for your time today. I'm looking forward to hooking up with you on the next one. Absolutely. Greg, thank you. You got it. Did you find this episode helpful? Please send us some feedback, suggest a topic, or ask a question. Reach out to CMMS Radio if you need a co-pilot on your CMMS project. Visit cmmsradio.com and use the What's On Your Mind link. Thank you for tuning in to CMMS Radio, your resource for all things CMMS from selection to implementation to help you make better choices, learn from industry experts, and have a successful CMMS journey.